Scottish Mortgage seeks out lateral thinkers like academics, authors and experts in the industry to shape our investment ideas. Not the usual suspects and narrow mindset of financial analysts and investment industry commentators. That way, we continue to build a portfolio that reflects real-world progress, not financial world noise. Scottish Mortgage is managed by Bailey Gifford. A key information document is available by visiting baileygifford.com. As with any investment, capital is at risk. Hello, my name's Jeremy Gordon and welcome to The Wealth Show. I'm very pleased to be joined on the podcast today by Dominic Scriven, a pioneering investor in Vietnam. Dominic is the founder and chairman of Dragon Capital, the oldest independent asset manager in the country. The group runs Vietnam Enterprise Investments Limited, a £1.4 billion investment trust, which pretty incredibly has been going since 1995. Dominic, good to speak to you again. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Jeremy. Good um, good morning to you. Good afternoon from here. Very great yeah. pleasure to be on the show. Yeah, I should say, well, th- thanks for making the time. Uh, uh, I think it's 6pm on a, on, a, on a Friday in Vietnam. Well, nothing more important than work, is that? <laughs> well, arguably. Um, okay, well, so um, let's get started. You, you moved to Vietnam in uh, 1991. Um, you know, as a society, how's Vietnam changed in the, the 30 plus years that you've been there? Well, that's interesting. I mean, it's obviously changed a great deal. I mean, if you look at numbers, the population's gone from 66 to 100 million people, um, you know, which is slightly more than a million growth in the population every year. And all of what that means for the workforce. Uh, Incomes um, have gone from a rather ludicrous and speculative $227 per person per year in my first year here, to um, hopefully $4,500 per person per year this year, which means that Vietnam ends, exits the group of low-income countries per the World Bank's definition, becomes a middle-income country, albeit at the lower level. You know, so that's great for Vietnam and its people. Yeah. In other ways, I mean, I'm talking to you from the 69th floor of a building in Hanoi, um, you know, nobody could see more than really two floors when, um, you know, when we started. So it's grown in many ways, not least upwards. But, you know, in in so many senses, um, it's still the Vietnam that, that, you know, that people would recognize from then with with uh, strong family traditions. The The interpersonal relationships here still are of enormous importance of course they are everywhere but you know in a a rapidly evolving um society where you know institutions are are slow to develop uh you you know interpersonal relationships have a have a higher priority and i i've always found that a a great aspect of life here uh you know both both in in the workplace but also outside the workplace you know so many many things haven't changed and what about you know as an investor, how has it changed? Well, if you take a snapshot, when we started investing, the there was a, there was a company law in 1992, my first year here, which was 22 pages long, and it was absolutely silent on the on the, the notion of foreign investors in Vietnamese companies, and so every investment we we had we made 
was an exception and we needed to get an exception from that the highest level of the executive basically the prime minister's office and there were no markets now of course you know there are 1500 listed companies uh, public companies um you know there's tens of billions of uh, dollars of foreign investment and and the, the markets themselves are are 50% of gdp which is sort of 220 billion dollars and people can buy and sell so you know the that sort of aspect has changed a great deal and it's brought with it a lot of the you know the positive developments and also the challenges of becoming a a modern economy i'd stress here that of course you know modern economic vietnam is um is really only 30 years old modern vietnam per se is 50 years old and indeed this year vietnam celebrates 50 years of diplomatic relations with with Britain. So that's a cause of great celebration in in our sort of bilateral life. Yeah. Um but but in economic terms it's really 30 years and 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 all that's happened. So it's one generation. So companies for example are getting to the stage where uh you know succession is an issue. And so you know family businesses are going well, you know mum dad are saying well kids do you want to take them over take it over or 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 do or the kids often aren't interested and so and so that becomes a an entry point for you know strategic investors and many of those are foreign so it's it's quite a lively and interesting period but a lot of the the aspects we meet are, are happening for the first time so there's an element of learning about something new uh, and 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 that's that's a challenge and a reward, really. And Vietnamese don't flinch from the challenges. Yeah, and you, um, I mean, so we we mentioned uh, your firm runs about five billion US dollars of assets, uh, but the best known fund is uh, this investment trust, Vietnam Enterprise Investments Limited, also known as Vale, its London Stock Exchange ticker. Right. I mean, so how did you, a British guy, come to set that up in 1995? You know, it seems a potentially outlandish proposition. Um, <laughs> Well, I didn't really. I I was trained for a, for a few years in, in in investment management, and I I didn't you know I didn't know anything else. And I'd finished my studies. I, I I went to Hanoi University to learn Vietnamese, and I'd finished my studies and running a bit low on cash and needed a job. And there there weren't a lot of jobs, and so it seemed like a you know. Um, it, it didn't seem foolhardy. It seemed like a bit of a challenge, but it seemed, seemed like a natural thing to do to try and start a fund. There, there were a few funds here, um, uh, but but we started out with the idea of you know engaging with Vietnamese companies. There weren't very many, and it was difficult, as I mentioned, and all of that. But but you know clearly in um, in most countries, you want to do business with the people of that country who understand the environment, who have the businesses, and who can sort out the problems. And you know you try and provide value to them it's been a wonderful journey really i wouldn't question really any of it you know there's been bad moments challenges um but it's generally been a good journey for vietnam and you know we've been with vietnam so it's been not a bad journey for us yeah um, and what what do you wish you'd known when you you set up the fund or, or or you know has it been such a kind of unpredictable experience that that question doesn't quite apply well I've never really felt that the direction of the country was in question, frankly. I mean, it's difficult for us now to, to, to cast our minds back. But in the early 90s, um, the, the framework of Asia was what you'd, ha- you'd have um, 
you know, 15 years of Deng Xiaoping in China. So things were really beginning to motor that they didn't actually have, you know, big open markets in China then, not until a, a, quite a lot later. Uh, but but clearly you could see where, where China was heading. Deng Xiaoping, you know, it, it's not important. Um, whether the the cat is black or white, so long as it catches mice, that sort of thing, to get rich is glorious. And then you had um, Korea and Taiwan, who just moved from sort of, you know, martial law, really, to open and democratic countries and were opening up their economies and markets. And then you had Southeast Asia, which was really sort of doing the same. So it would have been quite bizarre for Vietnam not to... Uh, follow the same sort of track, particularly given its um, its its state of impoverishment and you know lack of friends um, after uh, you know in that period the Soviet Union was really was really Vietnam's only friend, and of course the Soviet Union in the early nineties was 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 um, was was imploding. So the direction has not really ever been in in doubt. Um, the timing most certainly has been. Uh, it's been very, very difficult to predict what would happen when. And so, uh, you know, once had to build in um, a, a great store of resilience and patience and also temper one's ambitions. And that's a good lesson in life, I think, I think for everyone, but it's certainly been true. But I mean, I suppose to answer your question, you know, I thought, okay, we, we start Dragon and we'll, sell the business in three years and go and lie on the beach. Nobody told me that wasn't <laughs> going to happen. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, let, well let, let, let's come on to today. Um, so um, DN Vu, uh, the main portfolio manager of Vale, whose name I've probably just mispronounced, no, uh, said in a recent update, um, last year's precipitous market decline largely tracked increased global risk aversion as the Federal Reserve aggressively raised interest rates. Now, you know, w- Buried within that quote is the fact that it was, it was a difficult year uh, for Vietnam stock market and, and for Vail last year. Um, but as well as uh, those global factors, there were also some very specific Vietnam issues, right? Particularly to do with corruption and, and financial markets. I mean, can you can you talk about that a bit and those challenges? Yes, I can indeed. Um, you know, my my sort of in a in a nutshell, I think um, what what happened was that from when the market started in 2000 until sort of 2010, i.e. their first 10 years, you know, the equity market and the debt market as well, but the equity market certainly were were also rands. Nobody really paid any attention. And then in the early teens, um, you know, 20, 2012, 13, 14, the markets began to grow. And by 2019 and then particularly into 2020, in 2021, over COVID, um, you know, the markets had had shot, and they'd become, you know, two thirds as big as the banking sector, and um, the lack of attention from policymakers, legislators, and regulators, and the lack of resources, frankly. Uh, you know, the market's running ahead of the capacity to regulate. <clears throat> Suddenly, people looked around, they went, geez, these markets are big, we need to have a real close look at what's going on. And they identified, um, you know, a, a, a couple of, you know, sort of banner instances, really, of, of market abuse, I'd, I'd say, 
in in one case it was market manipulation and it, in another it was um, misleading information in in offering documents I mean at the end of the day and uh, <clears throat> and the regulators came down very hard and of course the market is overly retail in its participation and retail investors you know often don't have the the perspective of of let's say institutions and so um you know a, a lot of people were given a, a very severe shock <clears throat> i think the so retail investors were worrying the whole thing might collapse on a house of cards there might be widespread frauds and that kind of thing well not knowing where it would begin and where it would end yes i i, I think that's right jeremy yeah i mean in, t- in 2021 i don't have the numbers 22 the yeah. total um volume of the market in the year was 93% retail investor. Okay. So institutions play a very, very small role, um, uh, obviously including us. Uh, and um, and so it is a disproportionate size. Of course, that speaks itself to the, you know, the, 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 the uneven nature of market development. But I think our view on this would be, um, uh, uh, you know, would be you 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 can't have market. You know, markets where there's abuse are are not properly functioning markets. So, essentially, what happened was right, and uh, I don't think this is. Um, you know, some people have talked about some massive c- crackdown, all the rest of it. No, I think basically people, but you know, arguably a little belatedly, um, the relevant authorities are tackling. Uh, things that have got out of whack. So, you know, sentiment was hit um, uh, for sure. And, and, um, and you know, we need some time for that to recover. But it's essentially the, the right thing for the, for the, for the future of, of the markets and for the future of capitalism in Vietnam. Of course it is, yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, these issues went very high up. I mean, so the boss of the uh, Ho Chi Minh Stock Exchange has been dismissed for serious violations, I, I say in air, air quotes. I mean, what, what gives you confidence that the worst is over? Well, that's a good question. And um, uh, let, let's just let's just talk. So last year, there are essentially um, four incidents. So the first to which you refer, Jeremy, is a clean out at the market regulator, um, you know, for for reasons that have been alluded to, but haven't yet been addressed in a proper judicial or, or, or regulatory, um, you know, okay. environment. So it's not, that, it's not entirely clear yet what happened. No, no, well, I think most of us know, but the right. charge sheet hasn't yet been formally tabled if you know okay. what i mean at uh, the second following closely on that was a case of uh, manipulation of shares in one you know group company um and that was followed by um misleading information information in a, in a in a bond issuer of course not related to the equity market but related to retail investors and then that was followed towards the end of the year with a um a sort of bank real estate group um you know really pulled up for the for the same set of issues of misleading investors and um um you know as we come into this year um 
you know, there, there's been a couple of issues that have happened this year. In the early part of the year, a couple of deputy prime ministers resigned. And then, of course, most recently, the president has retired early. And but right. but but those are uh, different. Those are not related to the equity markets. Those are essentially related to um, issues that arose during COVID of um, of um, artificially inflating the uh, prices of COVID test kits and um, and uh, and irregularities in arranging repatriation flights for people and both of those two aspects you know those those hit at the heart of the of the people and their experiences during covid which as we know from everywhere not least britain that are you know extremely sensitive issues the the, the recent people who who's you know step retired resigned um they're not charged with any direct um involvement but they are being held accountable that stuff happened on their watch. So I think if you put all of these issues together, you can pull a common theme, which is that um, the, you know, the political structures in this country are not, you know, are demonstrating a very low level of tolerance for abuse of position and abuse of responsibility for both um, uh, acts of commission and acts of omission, and uh, you know it's quite it's quite rigorous. But you know if you're if you're a, if you're a Vietnamese person on the street, you're probably behind all of this. Okay, mm. and I, 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 I better just ask. So, were you uh, is Dragon Capital, uh, you know, an investor in, in kind of? I mean, you mentioned one firm with mm. a dodgy bond issue. You mentioned some some banks caught up in this. Were you an investor in any of these companies? No, thanks for asking, because I can clarify that in in none of those instances were we anywhere close in any of our portfolios. Um, of course, that doesn't exclude the fact that, you know, issues may pop up in the future. And a lot of what we, you know, we need to be, you know, eyes out um, and in the back of our heads you know, not just to um, uh, what, what what's going on elsewhere, but what's going on between other people that might affect us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and um, you know, it's quite it, it's it's conceivable that um, there'll be aspects. In fact, I'm aware of a particular issue at the moment that might involve us. Uh, you know, making a disclosure about an investigation going on in a company in trading in a company in which um, we are, we, we, we were also a, a holder, but none of this is, um, is anything sorry, can, other can than you the explain, ordinary. Can you explain that? That sounds quite Can you explain that a bit more? Sorry. That's to do with market manipulation of a, a company which you also happen to hold. Yeah. Yeah. So I can say this and we're, 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 we're live on, on the line. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm b- being very straight up. Um, Jeremy, I, this has happened today. Wow! Okay. That um, some of our funds traded in a stock last year, and um, two shareholding groups battling over control of that company. Um, one of them appears to have uh, raised the issue that you know trading by various people, including um, ourselves, was um, irregular. Oh, right. So. So we're, I think we're, we haven't got, there's no investigations of Dragon, let me hasten to add, but, but 
the issue has been raised with a broker with whom we were dealing. And so we need to be, you know, on our, um, uh, you know, on our toes in, in getting to the bottom of this. It's not, it's not big trading. It wasn't a big holding. It's a publicly listed bank. Um, uh, but it, it looks like we may have been a, a little bit, we, we may have been a, bit, a little bit of collateral between two, two opposing parties. Right. Okay. What's the so this is, this is, um, I, I think, you know, reference one of your earlier questions. This yeah. is the sort of stuff that, that can happen here. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I guess it can happen in other, in other places as well, but it can certainly happen here. It's part of the, you know, rough and tumble of trying to be an investor. Yeah. And what, what, what's the name of that bank? Are you able to say that or not? It's, um, EIB is the is the ticker, mm. um, which is Exim Bank, which is, is quite a big bank. Uh, there were two groups um, looking to um, looking to take control of the bank, and neither of them could because there was a foreign strategic sh- shareholder, and the foreign strategic shareholder sold, um, I believe, to one of the groups, and um, so that opened up. Um, the, that that made the decision in terms of who controlled the bank. Okay. Well, it certainly I, sounds like one to watch there, Dominic. I suppose, you know, there'll be people who say this all sounds uh, like very risky stuff. You know, is this all part and parcel of, of running a, you know, a single single country frontier market equity trust? You know, I suppose, what, what, why do you feel that people are, are compensated for the risks that are clearly involved here? That's a very good question. I mean, one of the one of the points I'm at pain to emphasize, and my colleagues, I think, share this, is when you go to present to investors, it's very important that investors understand um, the nature of the investment with which they're being presented. So, for example, um, you know, risk averse, or indeed, investors without a time horizon. Um, would be best advised, you know, to to treat somewhere like Vietnam quite quite carefully. Yeah. But um, you know, I mentioned at, at the beginning the journey's been essentially a good journey, um, and it has. So, I mean, we had a bad year last year, but beginning of last year, you know, Vale uh, was showing a twenty, uh, you know, would have been twenty one year return compounded net of everything of twelve percent a year. And, you know, that turns $1 into about $12. Yeah. And so over the long term, the returns are, you know, rather lower than perhaps some of the other people who've been on your on your show. That's a, that's a good long-term track record. And that's really what we aim to achieve. So, you know, a lot of the, a lot of our work, we're an active manager, of course, and a lot of our work is engaged not in looking for extra returns, but in being aware of where risks can occur and trying to, you know, manage out the risks and let the sort of growth take care of itself. There's been a lot of excitement about Vietnam and Vietnamese manufacturing uh, as companies try to shift supply chains away from China, um, you know. Uh, particularly, you know, since the pandemic started, since trade tensions with the US, ramp, you know, ramped up. I mean, how is that trend going? And, and you know, specifically, uh, w- were you disappointed by Apple's decision to uh, to uh, ramp up uh, iPhone production in India rather than Vietnam recently? 
Maybe we can start with that one and then you can talk about how it's going generally. Extremely distressed, Jeremy. (laughs) Anyone else get any of the pie? Uh, uh, No. And of course, what you refer to was was quite well covered by The Economist, wasn't it? A couple of weeks ago with some articles on Apple. So Apple's responding to, um, I suppose, you know, conventional economic pressures, isn't it? But it's also a very good example of the global, um, you know, the geopolitics and what's going on. And that's, yeah. you know, that's, that's more than my pay grade. But, you know, what one sees in Vietnam is that um, if you look at the numbers, you know, Vietnam has a, a monstrous um, trade deficit with China from whom it imports all sorts of things. And it has a stupendous trade surplus with the US, about the same size. And, uh, you know, clearly what's happening is that people are relocating from China and that's allowing them to continue their. So what they're doing is they're slightly adjusting their supply chains. In regards to Apple, um, yes, absolutely. There's been some great publicity about um, Apple moving to India. But, you know, Apple's also in Vietnam. Apple suppliers are 160,000 people in Vietnam. Uh, half of Apple's, um, you know, uh, pods will be made in Vietnam this year. And Half, um, half of the, Air, the, the AirPods, isn't the AirPods? Yeah. Wow. yeah. And of MacBooks, um, we, we recently heard that Apple expects to sell 24 million MacBooks this year and 8 to 10 million of them will be made in Vietnam. So, you know, you'd be you'd be greedy to expect all of that yourself. But I think Vietnam's getting a, you know, a reasonable, a reasonable share. And of course, that's being, you know, that's being um, echoed everywhere else because foreign investors have been that not new. They're huge. Um, you know, the, the hotel in which I'm staying at the moment is owned by a branch of the Samsung family, the biggest foreign investor in, in Vietnam. Um, uh, and and they've been here and others have been here for many, many years. The first, you know, banner investor, I would think, is is Puyen, which is the biggest um, subcontractor for Nike. Nike makes more than 50% of its clothing in Vietnam. Uh, now and so, but what what's happened is from the sub subcontractors, you're coming to the subcontractors, and then you're coming to the contractors, right. and then slowly you're beginning to see the brands themselves set up their, you know, their regional uh, sourcing, rather than it being in Shanghai or you know in Bangkok or Hong Kong, Singapore, whatever it is. You know, they're beginning to get confidence because you can. You can locate here. You, people can educate their kids here. You know, it's a safe place. You know, all of that stuff. There's availability of people. So actually, the the net value add of global trade per dollar of trade is accreting slowly into Vietnam rather than away. So I, I you know, I, that's that's a sort of predictable trend. You know, so long as Vietnam keeps its nose clean and does the right thing. Um, it's a predictable trend and it's a welcome trend. Okay. Um, thanks, Dominic. Well, let's come a, a bit more onto the kind of flavour of the portfolio type question. Um, you know, you've mentioned those layers of contractors, subcontractors, sub-subcontractors. Um, something we've discussed before, it, it's, it's quite hard to invest directly in that manufacturing growth. So, you know, what are the key drivers for, for Vale's portfolio uh, as it stands today? 
Yes, it's damn difficult to invest in the global manufacturing chain, as you say, Jeremy, you know, because that's private and, you know, who knows what sort of transfer pricing is going on. And so you actually want to be quite careful, I think, where you where you enter that supply chain. This was true in China, of course, until, um, you know, Chinese policymakers were and also, of course, the domestic Chinese capacity grew to the extent that, um, you know, foreign brands were able to contract directly and substantially with Chinese entities. And then those Chinese entities could act, you know, could enter the markets. So we, we've got that same trend going on here, but the, um, the manufacturing sector is still not yet well represented in the public markets, not well at all. So I think we play that, you know, for example, if we play um, global trade, you know, our holdings would be industrial zones, um, you know, ports, shipping companies. Yeah, obviously. Um, uh, logistics companies, um, you know, transportation, air freight's a big thing. Um, and then, and then we'd play, um, sort of more indirectly. So, for example, if you have 160,000 people working indirectly for Apple, you know, they're earning incomes, they need bank accounts, they need to borrow, they might need to borrow, buy a home. They're certainly going to spend more on beer and, you know, buy smartphones and, um, uh, you know, maybe maybe go on holiday and they'll have families and they'll want to educate their families. So there's a, there's a vast array of, 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 of sort of indirect plays. These we would centre, and if you look at the markets, you can see it, there's sort of two core areas. One is stuff related to real assets. So that's um, housing shopping malls, apartments, um, I- infrastructure, roads, yeah, um, uh, that that sort of thing, and then of course you've got uh, and, you, and you've got a developer like Vin Homes in your top ten holdings in Vale, right? Yeah, indeed, that's the biggest developer in the country. Yeah, absolutely, the biggest developer of, ho- of housing in the country. Very successful. They, you know, to, to give a flavour, I mean, when they, you know, when they when they start one of their big developments, it's got twenty thousand units planned in it. Okay, right. So large scale. Yeah. So you think what you need, you need schools and healthcare and transportation, bus services, you know, supermarkets, convenience stores, restaurants, leisure. You need infrastructure, roads, shopping malls. You know, you need the lot. And, and, uh, and this is happening, of course, in, in all three regions of the country, the north, the middle and the south. Actually, interestingly, you know, the south, has for many years been the runner and picks up a lot of the early investing in from from Hong Kong and from Taiwan and the little people from you know the early people from Japan and from Korea, but if you look at what's going on now, it's all happening in the or largely I would say happening in the north where you've got of course um, you know a, a much simpler issue for people moving their supply chain if you're in in you're in Guangdong province, which is that big province south of China of 100 million people and next door to Guangdong province is northern Vietnam and so you know most of the Chinese miracle was initiated in Guangdong province that's where Deng Xiaoping visited in 1979 and so people are you know for them the issue is can I move 100 kilometers 
you know, right. for people who still eat the same noodles. It's, you know, and believe in Confucius, get out of bed at the same time in the morning. It's, it's, um, it's, it's not, you know, people sometimes ask why, you know, why aren't, why aren't people rushing to Bangladesh? Well, some people are moving to Bangladesh, but, you know, viewed from that lens, people don't want to go from Guangdong to Bangladesh, um, you know, necessarily, unless there's a good reason, there's a skill set or a cost base or an opportunity there. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Dominic. I think sadly, you know, I, we could probably speak a lot longer, but that's all we've got time for today. Um, so, yeah, just want to say, well, thank, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast and speaking, um, uh, you know, uh, so candidly uh, about, uh, you know, Dragon Capital and what you do. Jeremy, you're very kind. It's been a great pleasure. It, it always is. Thank you very much. And I wish you and your listeners um, a very happy year of the water hair, which has just begun. Some people call it a cat and some people call it a rabbit it is in fact a water hair because it's my year and i know it excellent well well, well thanks again dominic and a, and a happy year of the water hair to our, our listeners too and please uh, look up for more podcasts from us soon scottish mortgage seeks out lateral thinkers like academics authors and experts in the industry to shape our investment ideas Not the usual suspects and narrow mindset of financial analysts and investment industry commentators. That way, we continue to build a portfolio that reflects real-world progress, not financial world noise. Scottish Mortgage is managed by Bailey Gifford. A key information document is available by visiting baileygifford.com. As with any investment, capital is at risk.